Thank you very much. It's great. Thank you, Robert. I'm they sound fascinating, your books. And yes, as I said, this is a historical novel as well. Um, I, uh, my mother was half Russian, so, I've, so I had this obsession with Russia all my life. And I studied Russian at university. And my first book was about a year that I spent um, in, in Russia as a student. And it happened to be the year that the Soviet Union was collapsing. And I was there with Lisa, one of the organisers of this festival. Um, we lived in a sort of grotty hostel, and all around us there was hyperinflation and you know collapsing borders, and it was an extraordinary moment to be there. Um, and since that moment, I've been fascinated by the Russian avant-garde, but it's kind of taken me a long time to write, to produce this novel. Um, and really, I suppose one of the things was finding a way into the story. So I. Um, I finally, I started, I read a lot of memoirs of English governesses who went to Russia before the revolution and, um, you know, they were quite well treated in Russia. They were well paid and it was sort of quite prestigious, more prestigious to be a governess in Russia than it was in this country. And, um, and so when war broke out, a lot of them stayed on because the Russians were our allies and it was dangerous to come home and then suddenly they were in this situation of the revolution and, um, and many of them stayed on then through the revolution and wrote amazing memoirs which, um, <coughs> which I read dozens of and so that's really where my heroine comes from, Gertie Freely and here she is arriving in Moscow. In May 1914 much against the advice of my parents, I took up the post of governess to the Kobylev family of number seven Gagarinsky Lane, Moscow. My new house was a large ramshackle building in need of a good coat of paint. It was reddish brown with a hefty, slightly sagging facade of white columns and pediment. On the other three sides leaned a mass of shabby outbuildings, a courtyard full of poultry and an overgrown lilac hedge. As I put my head out of the carriage, my first impression was of the dizzying scent of lilac and the heavy branches of pale, wet blossom gleaming in the half-light. My second was of a surprisingly deep and oily puddle into which I immediately stepped. I include these details because now that I sit down to piece together these memoirs, it strikes me they give a rather accurate shorthand of my life with the Kobylevs. Before I left my home in Cornwall, my parents and their friends had informed me at length of the mistake I was making. Several girls of our acquaintance had gone off to France or Italy to work as governesses, while Jennifer Travago was in Austria, and so we heard, skiing like a demon. But Russia was generally held to be a, kind, a country of wild Cossacks, bears, anarchists, and so forth. My father, a solicitor in Truro, who had no natural inclination towards adventure, would never have given his permission if it had not been for the fact that the introduction came through the redoubtable Miss Clegg. Miss Clegg was born and bred in Truro, a solid, leathery woman, as dependably stuffed with good chapel values as a pasty is with potato, despite the fact she'd been working as a governess in Moscow for almost a decade. Nonetheless, my mother wept when I told her I wanted to go. Oh! You are unfeeling. Aren't there enough children needing to be taught in, in Devon or somewhere? In my first weeks, it was unsettling to discover that my relatives' warnings, 
particularly those made from a position of absolute ignorance and prejudice, proved remarkably accurate. The food was rich and indigestible, the climate lowering, the arrangements chaotic, and the house not terribly clean. The servants, of whom there were an astonishing number, perhaps 40, were constantly travelling up and down from the Korbelev's country estate at Mikhailovka, south of Moscow. So it was months before I learnt their names, let alone their duties, which in some cases seemed absurdly specific. A pickling chef and two large liveried footmen who brushed the hats. When they weren't brushing hats, they were usually asleep on the front doorstep and one had to step over their legs to get in or out. On the other hand, however, and the longer I stayed in Moscow, the more it seemed to me that this was the only hand that mattered at all. From that first auspicious whiff of lilac, there was something irresistible about the Korbelev household. The front door swung open to reveal a large, dusty, red-papered hall and the colossal rear view of a footman in brown and gold livery. Without looking round, he held the door open with one hand and with the other cupped his mouth so his voice would carry further. Priyachilu mis, he bellowed. The miss has arrived. Immediately, the servants began to appear in the hall as if they'd been hiding behind doors in anticipation. Several young maids cannoned into each other as they arrived at a run. A hum of interested conversation arose as though nothing so exciting had happened for weeks. Although I later discovered that almost any arrival, even the clockwinder's weekly visit, was greeted with equal enthusiasm. A plump young woman with her hair in a turban, a little younger than myself, arrived, frowning. Miss Freely, I'm Sonia Korbelev. Welcome. And this is my younger brother, Pasha. How do you do, Miss Freely? A young man with a conspicuously well-tended moustache came up behind her, smiling. Pleased to welcome you to our abode. He spoke with an accent that hovered somewhere between Russian and Lowland Scots. As you can perhaps tell, I have already completed my school certificate in English, thanks to a Miss Edie Campbell from Melrose. She must have been an excellent teacher. I hate to correct you, but you probably mean she's done a grand job. <laughs> oh, for goodness sake, Pasha, don't start teasing her already, snapped Sonia. Ah, here come your charges, Miss Freely. My youngest brother and sister, Dima and Lisa. They arrived, panting and grinning, a solid, fair-haired boy and a taller, skinny girl with plaits. Dima took my hand. I am waiting and waiting for you, Miss, he said sweetly. Papa says you will teach me rugby football. <laughs> In the study, Mr. Korbelev, a tall, slight man with a grey-streaked beard, came forward to greet me. Welcome, my dear Miss Freely, sit down with us. You must be tired. I took a seat. As the room was painted dark green, full of smoke and unlit, I could barely see who was opposite me. At last, I made out two ancient ladies, the old governess, Mamselle, and Mr. Korbelev's aunt. They were bobbing their heads and smiling at me. I bobbed and smiled back, and they waggled their heads all the more energetically. Pasha came to my rescue, murmuring at me to stop first. Otherwise, you could be nodding at each other for days. Is that why the last governor's left? Yes, a very sad business. In the end, her head fell off. <laughs> so um, 
there she is arriving in this large, warm family, the Kogolevs, and she soon feels um, very much at home there. And um, so when war breaks out, she stays on. And in 1917, when the revolution breaks out, she decides to stay in the household um, with a group of the young Kobylevs and, and other people that she's met. And um, she gets involved in this utopian experiment of setting up a commune in the house. And they are, um, have I got a bit more time? Am I out? I'm not getting the you are, keep going. Okay, there's a little, a, very short other reading that I wanted to just do to, um, which is about them setting up the commune. And so the idea of the commune was um, they planned to live in an entirely egalitarian manner. So they share all their property, they collectivise all their belongings, um, they you know do all the household chores in rotation, and uh, it's all very very idealistic and rather wonderful. You know the beginning of the revolution before everything had gone, gone to the bad. So here is Miss Clegg, the governess from Truro, arriving again. Miss Freely, said Miss Clegg, striding into the hallway one hot August day. I made a promise to your poor parents. I cannot abuse their trust. I simply will not allow you to remain in the house a moment longer. Miss Clegg, there's no reason to feel concerned, I assure you. I make a living here by giving English lessons, and I'm among friends. I've lived here for over four years now. I feel at home. Miss Clegg's eyes flickered over our red corner with its slogans and portraits of Marx and Engels. Miss Freely, you know I am not one to mince my words. You are living in a house of ill repute. Your name is connected with the most depraved behaviour. There are those at St Andrew's Hostel who would refuse you entrance but I have used what influence I have with Reverend Brown to offer you this charity. Please thank the Reverend for me. Tell him I'm in no need of assistance. Now, if you'll excuse me, I have a meeting to attend. Miss Freely, I will not be sent away like this. Well, perhaps you'd like to stay for our evening meeting. You'll see there's nothing remotely depraved about it. It was perhaps unfortunate that she attended the meeting at which we set up the commissariat for clothing. Comrades, began Slavkin, once we'd all gathered. Good, all here. And we have with us also an acquaintance of Comrade Freely's. Welcome, Comrade Clegg. He nodded towards Miss Clegg, who was perched on a chair in the corner, her expression a wonderful mixture of excitement and disgust. Now, we must discuss the matter of the collectivization of our clothing. We've already decided to pool all our possessions for the common good. We have handed over our income and our valuables. How can we, therefore, allow one member to walk about in an astrakhan coat, while another shivers in a cotton jacket? Quite right, said Dr. Marina. Clothes only provide fuel for vanity. We cannot have them creating inequality between us. I don't see anyone wearing an astrakhan, commented Pasha. Pasha, a wool coat then, said Sonia. You know what he means. I just don't think this idea is radical enough, said Pasha. Why do we need clothes at all? It's warm at the moment. Clothes only get dirty and need washing, as well as promoting inequality. I mean, even collectivized clothes. Give one man a smock, he'll look like a wastrel. Give the same smock to another, he'll wear it like a hero. Pasha ran on. 
Everyone knows that. Only the naked body can be truly equal. I'll second that, Volodya, the ex-soldier, drawled, speaking past the soggy cigarette stub that lived in the corner of his mouth. Clothes off, everyone. He stood up and took off his jacket with a flourish. Thank <laughs> you.